You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome. Happy New Year. This is Detailing Addiction with Dr. Susan Blank. You're listening to America's Web Radio. Today in studio with me, I have David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center and Julie Kostanovic. Did I say it right? <laughs> you did. You did oh great. Oh, my gosh. I've been practicing. Um, who is our special guest from Northside Gwinnett Family Medicine Residency? As many of our listeners know, we do have our family medicine residents rotate through Atlanta Healing Center so that they can learn a little bit about addiction. And part of our ask of them is that they will help us out with either a radio show or giving a lecture for our families on our Wednesday night family night. Well, Dr. Julie, as we're going to call you, um, since I keep slaughtering your name, I'm so sorry. It's totally fine. Happens all the time. I bet it does. Um, Is here um, with us today. She opted for the radio show. So we're very happy that you're here and very grateful that you took some time to prepare. But before we get into our topic, which I'm sure that our listeners are going to find very interesting, which is about the effect of addiction on families, I'd like you to introduce yourself and tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I grew up uh, in California. Then I moved to Georgia, did my undergrad at UGA, and then I did medical school in PCOM. Between that, I worked for a little bit in retail, so that was super fun. <laughs> Decided that was not for me, and then went back to medical school, and then ended up at Northside Gwinnett in family medicine. So PCOM is... Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. So they have a satellite campus in Swanee, and then I believe they just opened another one in Milton, Georgia. Oh, Milton Moultrie something. Very nice. Very nice. So we are very glad that you're with us. You're a second year? Yes, ma'am. And um, Julie, Dr. Julie has been doing very well, and certainly our patients enjoy having you. And uh, we have certainly appreciated your being with us, so thank you. And thank you to um, Northside Gwinnett Family Medicine Program for allowing the residents to come and for participating in the radio show. So shouts out to uh, Dr. Johnson and Carol Miner and all the folks um, at the residency program. We appreciate very much. So Dr. Blank gives them the choice of doing the radio show or doing a lecture, and that's pretty much all she tells them. They pick the topic and they decide what Mm -hmm. they're going to bring, and they make questions and a handout for us. I think this is a great topic because I know you've experienced a lot of this with our current with the current population. But I am curious in terms of your own choosing this. Yeah. So I mean, obviously, for what what I saw at Atlanta Healing Center is just the impact it has on the families, and vice versa, the impact the families have on the addict themselves. So. Seeing that dynamic was interesting. I think there's just a lot of education that needs to happen there on both sides. And then just me personally, um, I've told you guys this before, I've had a lot of experience with addiction in my own family. And just being able to really see it and learn from it, I think, has been beneficial. So I like to put my little twist on it. Nice. Very good. And this is a really important topic and one that I think is hard for families to understand 
often they want to just kind of slow down and let their um, loved one drop, tuck, and roll out of the car as they leave the parking lot at Atlanta Healing Center. And they want us to fix their loved one and then send them back home, and then everything will be fine. And this whole understanding the dynamic of the patient within the family and the family's impact on the patient, really important for everybody. And unfortunately, if both the patient and their family don't get into some form of recovery and don't understand this disease and take it seriously and participate, we find that our patients are much less successful. So really important. I'm glad you picked this topic. So what do we know about um, addiction as a disease? (laughs) So the definition is that it's a primary chronic disease of the brain reward, motivation, memory, and relayed circuitry. That was defined by the American Medical Association years and years ago in the 50s. I don't know if you have a more simplified version that you give to your patients, but I think that kind of encompasses everything. Um, What I think is very important to relate to people is that it's not something that, you know, you know what an addict look like or, you know, it's not going to happen to you. It can be anyone any person, shape, form, color, gender, anything, and it's one out of seven of us, and that's pretty common if you think about it. Right. It is a very common and a chronic illness, and I'm glad that you you brought that up in your definition because it is important. So many times people think, well, I just go and have an episode of treatment, and then I'm done, but we know this is a chronic illness that has, you know, successes and then has some um, times in which the person might have a relapse or um, they might need to have treatment again or heightened treatment. And, And that is the normal part of the disease. It's not this person is being bad, they didn't care, they didn't try, they didn't learn. It's part of this disease. So that's very, very important. And one in seven... That's really pretty common. It's right up there with some other (laughs) lethal diseases that fall into your um, treatment population. That's actually a higher stat than than what's often talked about. It's real often we'll talk about 1 in 10, Mm -hmm. which is a big number. Um, but, but that's even more intense. In, um, in the addiction counselor world, we talk about addiction as the continued use or the continued um, choice to do such and such behavior despite serious consequences. Um, but what I like so much about the def- definition you brought out there is that it is specifically bringing it to the brain and specifically relating it as a medical disease because that is the one piece of it that that is still um, ignored and there's still so much judgment put on mm-hmm. the person who has addiction. There's still, whether whether consciously or not, there's still such a moral aspect of it that when you can stop and look at it as this is an organ in the body that is right. malfunctioning. For sure. And it that impacts the entire system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's also difficult for people, you know, if they see it from that standpoint, they want a cure, they want a, a quick fix like we do for so many other things. And unfortunately, with addiction, it's not 
it's not a quick fix, and there's work to be done on both sides, and people need to, you know, they have to work on that. Unfortunately, yes, and like most chronic diseases, we can help someone manage it. We can help them live a relatively normal and healthy life, but they have to pay attention to it and they have to take care of it. And education is a really big part of it. Now, when when we usually, the first contact with Atlanta Healing Center is through Michael, Michael Daly, and it's usually, <laughs> he's waving in the background, folks, in case you can't see it on radio, um, <coughs> He is approached by not the patient generally, but by the family. And the family members are very often, and interestingly, it's usually a female family member, a mother, a wife, a daughter, uh, that is reaching out and seeking information and some advice and direction because they aren't doing so well. And the family often recognizes the severity of the illness before the impact has truly been acknowledged. I won't say felt, but acknowledged by the patient. Yeah. I've heard great things about Michael's phone calls, (laughs) by the way. I've heard he's excellent. He is very excellent. So anybody out there, just call Michael. (laughs) (laughs) So the families will be the ones that reach out and often have the questions about treatment, what is it, what can they do, what should they do, how can they encourage um, their loved ones. They don't realize, though, that it has not just affected their loved one, that this disease has actually impacted them. They're having a lot of trauma. They're being overwhelmed. Yeah, they are. Um You know, and it's not just like that they're mentally overwhelmed. It's emotionally overwhelmed. It's financially overwhelming. Mm -hmm. You know, it's stressful in the entire family, and that in itself is difficult. Um, There's lots of different roles that family members play. I think there's some healthy ways to go about it, and then there's some unhealthy ways to go about it. I think the more unhealthy roles we should go over first and, okay. you know, like what to look for. And if you recognize those things, you kind of know where to correct. So I think the first thing people do sometimes is they will sort of blame the addicts. So they'll mm-hmm. be more of like a persecutor. So they tend to be a little bit distant. They tend to be a little bit angry. I think I've seen this in a lot of our addicts, unfortunately. The family members, they just don't... They don't want to address the issue, Mm -hmm. so I think they just try to either ignore it completely or they just get angry about it. They're very angry. When when you mentioned the word blame, um, my thought went first to when we work with a young adult or an adolescent, the blame is on the friends. They have these bad friends. They have this bad group at school that they're hanging out with. So that was the first thought. So the family blames the friends. Um, That doesn't usually last too long. And then you're right. They often are blaming the person for making bad choices, doing stupid things. You made your bed. Now you have to lie in it. Right. And there's judgmental attack on the person. Right. And so this um, individual often does feel persecuted. Um, They often can turn that to their advantage sometimes by playing the role of the victim. 
and acting helpless and hopeless and waiting for the family to begin to try and rescue them. Mm-hmm. Um, but that persecution uh, is often not just limited to the, the family members, but sometimes um, the um, health care providers they show up in the ER, they've been in a car accident, it's a DUI, uh, people are hurt. That does upset people. It upsets the policeman who brings them in. It can be upsetting to the individuals working in the ER. It's, um, it's a chain reaction. Often the person who has the disease of addiction, especially when the disease is very active, they are... Sometimes physically, but most of the time verbally or at least attitudinally. I'm not sure that's the right word. My husband will let me know. Um, but they're attacked in some way in how they're treated that um, you're bad, you're wrong, um, you're a, not a good person. I don't want to have anything to do with you. Mm-hmm. Disgust is the look that's on people's faces that are interacting with our patients very often. And it's really interesting how that persecution comes from people you wouldn't necessarily expect. Like you mentioned, the physician, uh, ER doc or primary care physician sometimes can be persecuting. Um, a lot of times it will be one of the parents or even one of the siblings that's persecuting. Right. Mm-hmm. And don't get us wrong, if you've made a mistake, if you've made a bad choice, there are consequences and you shouldn't be rescued. But that's another story for another day. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to continue to talk about the disease of addiction and its effect on the family. So please stay tuned. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You can keep your doctor, you can keep your plan, and every family will save thousands of dollars a year. I'm Ellen Deal, and if you've been hurt by the Affordable Care Act, you can email MAGA45CAG at gmail.com to see if we can help. Small business owners, individuals, families, and baby boomers, email MAGA45CAG at gmail.com for three easy questions to determine if you can get away from Obamacare. I'm a 20-year veteran of the insurance industry and here to help you for all your insurance needs. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. 
They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Telling Addiction, I'm Dr. Susan Blank. You're listening to America's Web Radio. Today in studio with me, David Donaldson is here from the Atlanta Healing Center and Dr. Julie Kostanyevic. Yes, she does it much better than I do. From uh, Northside Gwinnett Family Medicine Program here in Gwinnett County. Um, she's joining us as part of her rotation with the Atlanta Healing Center. And the topic we're talking about today is a very important one. And we just started touching on the unhealthy roles that different people will assume within the family. And there's usually someone who is the persecutor. That's the first one we talked about. So the persecutor may show up in other places in the person with addiction's life, but there's usually someone in the family that is very vocal, very angry, um, demanding, wanting change, wanting things to be different now, and wanting this person to just get their act together. But David, you made a really important point. Um, The next role that we're actually going to talk about is often the same person as the persecutor. Um, So the the person who has the disease of addiction is often feeling really confused and kind of guessing what they're going to come into um, because they'll experience the persecution, but then the next experience they'll have from the same person will be, um, I'm going to flip it over to Dr. Julie. It'll be something called the rescuer, the protector. So they won't hold the addict accountable. They'll kind of give excuses over and over just to hide any kind of shame or embarrassment, and it really limits recovery, and I think it's important for people to recognize that. They're, you can't really save an addict, so to speak. I mean, they have to do the work. You cannot keep covering and making excuses for them. And we also talked right before um, the break that there is the often consequences. This mm-hmm. person has made a bad choice. They have chosen um, and their disease is out of control and they are drinking and driving. And so there are usually consequences. Um, car accidents, DUIs, other kinds of problems. The rescuer is going to be that person that's going to call up the judge and get an attorney there and bail them out immediately and do all of the things to make a real soft landing so that the consequences um, for the behavior are not usually suffered by the patient themselves, but the family's coming up with the money, the family's coming up with the stories for the patient's employer or for school, all kinds of things so that it looks really nice on the outside, saves the embarrassment to the family. It's a very interesting dynamic because on the ride home, this rescuer is <laughs> flipping sides to the persecutor. Flipping <laughs> exactly. right over there. Sideswiping, terrifying, and and it is um, 
It is crazy making for both the family and for the patient. I mean, we're we're presenting these in jovial terms, but it really is very serious. And family members often get really stuck in some of these very unhealthy roles that they often didn't choose Mm -hmm. that happen to them. And that's a point that, David, you often make in our family night when you're educating people about these roles, that um, people find themselves assuming the roles, not that that's what they want to do. They don't want to be the superstar, the hero, for example. Yeah, what we often talk about is that these are roles that the family needs. And they are going to be played, whether it's within your natural personality to be this character. The role the family's need is much more important than the individual um, worth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I think outside of the rescuer, you also get, like you mentioned, the hero, you know, the superhero of the group. And those people tend to be the perfectionists. They try to make everything look perfect. Nobody's going to know that anything is wrong. It's a great house with a white picket fence. The grass is mowed. And they completely compensate for everything else that's going on just to cover it up. And that's also a very dangerous role because as the disease progresses, it gets more and more difficult to do that, more and more expensive to do that. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, it's you can't do it forever. Right. And it's a lot of pressure on the superhero to perform all the time, to really be the face of the family. So they may be the one that um, is the star athlete or gets really good grades or is a community leader that really has to sacrifice themselves for the um, for the. The face of the family, so to speak. Now, people have innate drives for these kinds of roles, and so not everyone who's the superhero in the family is doing it out of pathology or being for- forced, but many times um, these folks feel very desperate and lonely because they have to keep working and earning more and more mm-hmm. accolades and distracting from the chaos and the, the sadness yeah. and fear at home. They keep compensating for, you know, that emptiness, everything that's going on with the addicts. They're overcompensating for that. They often um, grow up with this real sense of inadequacy, mm-hmm. that they're just not good enough, as good as they are, and all of their peers are just marveling at mm-hmm. how skilled and talented they are, but on the inside they're feeling just... Yeah, it's never enough. Never enough. Never enough. Because it won't be enough. You can't keep tap dancing. No. You'll get worn out. <laughs> you'll get yeah. worn out, and you can't keep it up, and yet the pressure to do that at all costs is very um, strong and may not ever have been said. This is the interesting things about these roles. You don't wake up in the morning and you get a t-shirt that uh, identifies your family role for the day. Um, As David, you said, you kind of um, sometimes find yourself assuming that role not by your choice um, or even by your your, uh, conscious knowledge. Our innate ability. It's just going to happen. And what's so interesting is that this particular person will tend to develop a life apart from the family. So when they are able to escape, they go to the entire opposite side of the country. Right. They are getting away from this family, and then they recreate it. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And that also leads us into another role, the lost child, so to speak. And they do, like what David said, they will isolate themselves just to completely avoid any conflict and just keep everything suppressed. They don't want to engage in any of the emotions that they're feeling. Because when you do have, you know, an addict in your family or in your life, there's a lot of emotions there. And it's just a lot easier to shut the door and not Mm -hmm. deal with them. But that cuts you off to developing any relationships later on in life. So the, the lost child is often very interesting, um, and often at, at home they really are the quiet one who's in their room, who's um, playing video games, who's kind of lost at school. They're a, a C student. They don't cause trouble, but they don't generate any attention either positive or negative they just really seem to be blend right Mm -hmm. right in that uh, story the cipher in the snow i don't know if you remember that story from your your vaguely remember uh, the looks on your face (laughs) no but uh um uh, you know long story very paraphrased uh about um uh, a child that is on the bus and nobody nobody misses them and they fi- they're found frozen in the snow and people don't even know who they are you know it's it's this lost person and this is um, very reminiscent of how this child is it's the role in the family don't make waves get out of the way stay in the background they too escape the family pretty quickly unfortunately often they're not noticed that they're gone. I might have to look that story up. I don't know that I've ever heard that, but um, I was I was thinking. Um, I know, I know. In the course of this past month, you've had the opportunity to observe some of these people exhibiting these roles within our practice. But I also think this one in particular in the in the family practice setting, because um, they are going to come in and, and present like a pretty compliant patient probably not doing anything that you've recommended but to your face they're presenting like a pretty compliant patient and telling you everything's fine so as a as you're beginning your career and and realizing you've got to get accurate symptoms from this person who's really not going to be forthcoming Mm -hmm. are you gaining some clues (laughs) yeah i mean they're difficult in all honesty i think it just takes time i think you really have to build a relationship and you have to build a safe place with that person for them to be able to open up. That's not something that I think I could ever get out of somebody in a 15 minute visit. But I think if you just take people where they are and you slowly work with them, eventually you'll get to that level where you can, you can have that communication. The more that you're able to think about when you're setting up your own environment, creating a a safe feeling environment and creating a place where they feel like, wow, I can just talk the more that this character in particular is going to start to give you little hints of who they are. Yeah, and I think, you know, if you even have a hint that you have a patient like this, I mean, even something as simple as leaving your computer outside. I mean, for primary care, no, that's hard because we always have to have our laptop taking notes because we're super busy all the time. But even just leaving that outside so you don't have that barrier, right? I think will really go a long way with this this individual coming around the desk and sitting yeah. on the same side of the desk as yeah. the patient so that there isn't the barrier of the desk um, sometimes slipping out of your white coat in a <laughs> safe way so that you're not carrying a, a, yeah. um, an authority figure but that you're 
yeah interested and that you're gonna be taking some time not very likely and possible with every patient every day but certainly you'll you'll feel these people yeah you will as you are aware of these you will begin to sense that i'm sitting here talking to somebody that needs me to ask more questions that really is a lost child yeah and no one's ever really heard them or seen them yeah in the way they'd like to be heard and seen your next character when we come back is going to talk a lot and you're going to have to find another way in (laughs) so please stay tuned the disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank. You're listening to America's Web Radio. And today in studio with David Donaldson and myself is Dr. Julie Kostanyevic. And she comes to us <laughs> Um, You're going to get it. (laughs) I'm going to get it. Probably. When's your last day? Friday? Yeah. Okay. Um, My goal is after a month um, of just calling her Dr. Julie or Dr. K, um, I will get it. I promise. So we're um, talking about um, the issues related to the roles that the family plays, the unhealthy roles that family members assume when someone is active in the disease of addiction. And these are sometimes very subtle, sometimes not so subtle. But this next one, usually not so subtle. No. Not, not the lost child. <laughs> they are not. They're going to be more of the problem child. So they're going to be more of the scapegoat. They're going to be the ones constantly getting in trouble. They're going to be picking fights at school, getting bad grades. They want the attention on them because they're so used to giving it up to the addict. Um, and it also just keeps the attention off of the addict themselves, you know. And these typically, I think, they tend to be more of siblings of the addict. I don't know what y'all's experience is, but I would imagine that would be pretty accurate. Yes. Most families will have a hero, and most families will have a scapegoat. So you're going to be talking to somebody that's that has all these wonderful things to say or somebody that's got a thousand people to blame. But you, you're going to meet one of those two if you're dealing with this family dynamic. For sure, yeah. Um, 
the hero's getting all of the attention for being successful, doing well, the star. Um, so the scapegoat has to use another method of getting attention, and the idea of bad attention is better than no attention. Human beings can tolerate anything but being ignored. That is the hardest thing for them. So the scapegoat gets his, um, as one of my professors used to talk about, warmth by friction. So they get the affection and the... um, the attention from the family or at school or at work by being the troublemaker, the one who's... People spend a lot of time on the scapegoats. They they uh, may not get as much time as the person with the disease of addiction. They get a lot of time. Real often they will be the first one that starts experimenting with chemicals and they will be also presenting with the disease of addiction before long. Um, so we meet a lot of these. <laughs> and you will meet in your own practice a, a lot of these. Yeah. Or you'll have moms calling you and talking to you about these. <laughs> Looking forward to that. Looking forward to that. <laughs> and the, the, the inter- call Michael. <laughs> the yes. interesting thing is, is that some of these um, phases are part of normal growth and development. So it's easy to... You know, um, to see glimpses of this, but we're talking, uh, they often are in this role to their detriment for a fairly significant period of time, not just in reaction to you know, something that's happened at school or at home, but this becomes a very consistent pattern of behavior for them. So the, the last one, though, is, um, is the one that also gets a lot of attention, but not by being the star and not by being the person getting into trouble, but the person that is hilarious. This is the funny guy. This is the joker. They use humor. It's just a default defense mechanism. They just want to make everybody laugh and just kind of limit the suffering and distract from it with happiness and laughter rather than actually address the issue. So you'll see that a lot, especially in little kids, I would imagine. <laughs> and it's it's very interesting because um, the persecutor is very vocal in their anger and their frustration, and you don't miss that. But the joker is also telling the family truth, um, but they do it with humor, so it doesn't seem to have the barbs, but they're really there. Yeah. Uh, so there's still in the jokes, joker, the mascot, um, this person often has a lot of anger, a lot of frustration, um, but they have a much um, more pleasant way of communicating with the jokes and the snide remarks and the sarcasm and the, the charm that they can get away with things and they can say things that other people can't just say directly. You'll see a lot of these, especially if you end up doing pediatric work, you'll see a lot of these as natural sibling development when they're 
six on down, seven on down, because mm-hmm. a seven-year-old that gets a brand new little sibling is going to go through jealousy and is going to go through all this stuff because yeah. the baby is going to be the cutest one. <laughs> right. <laughs> but when these people are in their 30s and 40s and you're still seeing these, then you know these have become more fixed states rather than just a stage they were going through when they were developing. Developing. Yeah. They've, they've, they've made uh, a survival skill out of a stage rather than just passing through it. Right. <clears throat> yeah, and I think that is something... I mean, these roles, if you establish them, like you said, when they're young, they do kind of set the tone for the remainder of your life regarding relationships if they're not addressed early on and the addiction is not addressed early on. It can certainly set up some roadblocks for you later on. Yeah, um, in terms of the things that you take out of that family that you grew up with and these characteristics, I know that you, you've done some looking at that as well in terms mm-hmm. of how it you carry it into adulthood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you see it in... Um, you see it in how you interact in other relationships. Uh, if you're ever in a group, in an office setting, part of a team in college doing something, you'll see people beginning to assume their family roles. It's really quite, quite interesting. And um, not always pathological, but it is usually quite pre- pre- quite present. One of the things that I think is important, important for our listeners, too, if some of these characteristics sound familiar but addiction isn't part of your family, this is, um, these are the family roles that often develop out of a family under stress. So it may be um, these same things can happen if there's a, a, a divorce or um, a parent that is deployed and gone for a long period of time. Uh, if someone is ill, if there's mental illness or physical illness in a parent or a sibling, you will see these same kinds. These This is a stress reaction mm-hmm. to um, some kind of event that is more than short-lived within a family. When there's a long-term stress on the family, this is the way the family members try and get their needs met. So sometimes it becomes very pathologic, but it's not always associated just with addiction. These can happen out of other family um, dynamics where there's a lot of stress on the family Mm -hmm. or continued stress. Yeah, I think specifically, though, with addiction, I mean, if you're speaking in terms of children, they certainly have a much higher risk of developing some sort of emotional or behavioral challenge later on in life just because of the stress that they were exposed Mm -hmm. to so early on. Um, You know, it it can even be something as simple as finances. I mean, we've talked how expensive recovery is. It's not cheap. You know, even just the consequence of those actions, you're talking a DUI, that's $10,000. That's a lot of money to a lot of people. So finances are tight, you know, the kids may not get school, they may not get clothes, they may not get food, may not get health care. All of these things are affected. And, you know, as a child, that's hard. That's very hard to accept. They don't know how to process that. Especially if the family isn't really forthcoming and talking about what's going on or recognizing and trying to help the child with some coping skills um, and to talk to them about 
whatever's appropriate, you know, in using the language that's appropriate for their stage of development. But often all of this is very secret. And the family, uh, I can't tell you how many um, uh, patients, particularly moms, but dads too, will come in and say, oh, well, you know, my child's seven years old. They don't know what's going on. And um, but they know something is wrong. They're <laughs> there not, you, you know. They they know when something is not right. Right. It just needs to be explained to them right. on their level. So it's not that they necessarily have the details. Oh, daddy got a DUI and then lost his job and uh, blah blah blah. But they know. They've overheard conversations. They feel the change in the energy at home. It creates a lot of anxiety and. Um, there are some some important programs that have been developed for children, young children of um, people with the disease of addiction. And these are really, um, Jerry Moe has a program that was first started at um, the Betty Ford Institute many years ago um, that is very helpful to kids whose parents are undergoing treatment and who have been identified as having this disease to really help the child cope and to really prevent what or mitigate, let's say, uh, the possibility that this child can grow up and and exhibit the disease of addiction in their life too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, even if you're just talking about alcohol alone, if you grow up with a parent that's an alcoholic, they have almost four times the risk of becoming an alcoholic themselves, which is crazy. I mean, you try to protect your child from all of that, but sometimes you forget those things. I actually think it's it's beginning to change because alcohol is becoming so much more pervasive in our society. Yeah, I read a statistic the other day that I, th- I think it was like over 50% are drinking more than three drinks a week or something like that just because it is so easily accessible. There's so many events that did not used to exist mm-hmm. that when you look at the event, it really is another drinking event. Mm-hmm. Um somebody in in our group just recently went to a gender reveal party and I don't know that this gender reveal party was one that <laughs> included a lot of drinking but I know that a lot of them yeah. now are occasion to bring out um, the wine and to, yeah. to celebrate that this child is going to have a gender at some yeah. point all of these different events that used to air quote um, not even exist are now right. existing as drinking opportunities and the truth is alcohol is going to create consequences whether you're an alcoholic or not if you're abusing it and if you're doing it long term it's going to create mm-hmm. physical health consequences that are going to have prices yeah and we've talked about it too i mean even professionally it's you know every event every work event has some sort of alcohol involved it's a cocktail hour it's this that and the other you know the family members of physicians are expected to go to these events even if they have problems themselves you know they're expected to go and present this great picture of the family and be part of the hour socially mm-hmm. and it's you know it's almost like you need to drink to be socially accepted and that's a fundamental problem for a lot of people correct and it's, um, it's such a mixed message. We give all of these warnings about healthy lifestyles and um, making good choices, and yet that's not the way most people live. And they don't assume it's a problem either. You know, hearing folks talk about 
Sunday evening Bible study, and they're bringing the wine. Um, the play dates in the afternoon. These kinds of things that, to your point, David, people didn't used to include alcohol are now, it's just assumed. And people are surprised if it doesn't happen. And it puts um, a lot of pressure sometimes on people. And people get into, and I don't know, we don't want to say that addiction is a habit because that's one of the things we talk a lot about. This isn't a bad habit. But people do without the disease of addiction, develop some bad habits around their use of alcohol in particular. And that's um, becoming more and more of a problem and part of our society. And bad things can still happen even if you don't have an addiction. You can still get a DUI. You can still say something rude at the Christmas party and um, have some consequences from your work. So we're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk more about how the disease of addiction impacts the family. Thanks for listening. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Good morning. My name is Mike Mizell. I'm a retired Army colonel and president of the Johns Creek Veterans Association. We meet in Newtown Park, and part of one of our projects is the installation of the Healing Wall, the half-scale model of the Vietnam Wall that traveled the United States. Well, it's coming to rest, and it's going to live in Johns Creek forever, the half-scale model. We're looking at a possibly a march implementation ribbon-cutting ceremony, and we're looking for donors this and sponsors that want to help Blank, us in this great project. For the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770 770- Six nine six nine eight six two. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. This is America's Web Radio. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and in studio today with me are David Donaldson and Dr. Julie... You can do it. I can do it. Kostanovic. 
Much better. Much better. Not <laughs> quite right. Please say it correctly. Kostanyevic, but you did way better. Than okay, way better. Well, that's better than not better. So that um, was an example of a healthy role. She supported you in being in able, being to, able to take the risk, even though didn't do it quite right. We'll keep trying. Thank you. Thank you. Um, this is um, this is a very interesting topic, and I think one that people need to really think about. We see the unhealthy roles, and we know that this impacts the person. Um, it impacts the family. It impacts the individual with the disease of addiction or the mental illness or other kinds of um, family stressful situations. But there is hope, and that's one of the reasons that we spend a lot of time and encourage our families to be part of family night and family program and family education so that they can begin the uncomfortable process of recognizing how that role sometimes fits them and then to learn some healthier coping skills. Yeah, and, you know, as we mentioned before, The families are fundamental to the addict's recovery. Mm -hmm. They need to be there. They need to support them. But as you said, we have to do it in a healthy way. So there's some things that you can do. I mean, like we just demonstrated, you need to be supportive. Right. But you also need to tell them, you know, if this is wrong, then it's wrong. And you can't cave. You can't give them an excuse. You have to be that way every single time. But you still need to be positive. Mm -hmm. But there is still that sense of accountability there. And then you also have to go back to a positive reward symptom. I mean, simple things, you know, you do something good, good things happen. You do something bad, bad things happen. It's just the fundamental basics that kind of need to be reinstilled especially if those unhealthy relationships have been around for, you know, years and years. Right. And that is, um, again, another part of healthy parenting, which is, here are the rules. Your bed is either made or it's not made. If it's made, you get the star. If it's not made, you get a star taken away. Or how, however you think about that, that it really is very important to have clear boundaries and clear expectations and clear consequences if the expectations aren't met. That's real I'm easy to say. Reminded <laughs> of, of a conversation that you were talking about with some parent in which you were helping them understand that they need to do something even though it's going to be painful. I think, was it immunizations or Mm -hmm. one of those kind of things where you were saying with your little child, you were able to walk through this pain. Um, And it was a really beneficial way to look at Mm -hmm. that. That's a really good example, actually. Right. That even though we know it's going to hurt, that you don't want to do it, that the child is going to cry, that you're participating in taking your baby to the doctor and getting the shot, you know that for the greater good, for this child to be healthy and not develop one of these um, preventable illnesses, that you do it and you and you make the child do it. And they have to go to the dentist and they have to do their homework and they have to you know, practice the piano or whatever it is because as an adult, you know what the outcome is if they don't and what the potential is if they do. And it's easier, not easy, but easier to see that role 
with a child having to go to the doctor or the mm-hmm. pediatrician. It's harder to see that role with your young adult or even your adult child that you're still trying to, well, if he doesn't really want to do this, I shouldn't make him. Hmm. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I like that way you phrase it, actually, because as an adult, you know what the consequence will be if they don't do this. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it's also important that you recognize that addiction is a disease and you know it isn't the person's fault they didn't choose to be Correct. like that you have to accept that and you know you also have to stop blaming yourself i think i've seen a lot of family members you know they try to take some blame on themselves right and you have to take a step away from that you know it's, it's not about you you can only make the corrections going forward and you have to make those positive changes to help the addict through and you have to keep those positive changes for the remainder of however long you guys are here to keep them in recovery. Where it becomes a natural thing for for all involved if the recovery process continues, um, where people are learning to be able to communicate about their feelings and their wants and their needs in a healthy and direct way, um, and they're learning to live with each other in recovery versus around each other, fighting with the addiction. Mm Yeah. I, I like, David, um, when you talk to families about language um, and about the parent-child conversations and the adult-adult conversations. And that um, because we deal with adults, uh, it is appropriate that this relationship between a, a spouse or a parent or a child to become an adult-adult relationship as opposed to the continued codependent um, relationship. Manipulating. Threatening, threatening, bribing, ignoring. And (laughs) acting out and running away and making a scene. (laughs) Yeah, because fortunately at the Atlanta Healing Center, we're an adult program, and so when we're talking to each other, the focus is on adults talking to adults. But sometimes we don't even do that well. (laughs) (laughs) Practice, practice, practice. Practice, practice. So people can learn new roles, um, but being consistent is the hardest thing. It's the hardest. Change is hard. Mm -hmm. And I think especially early on, it's probably harder than later. Right. And the consistency, being consistent, holding each other accountable, uh, those kinds of things are are new behaviors. Maybe not newly learned, but newly reinstituted in relationships. And, and that is difficult. And sometimes you have to let your loved one make their choice. And that is very, very hard, but also very, very necessary for everybody because they need to learn. Well, because part of what's true with all of these roles, whether it's the addict or the the family members, is that none of them are learning how to feel feelings and experience and express feelings appropriately. Um, and, And so 
the recovery process for all of them is recognizing that feelings just are. Right. Um, which is so overwhelming for people, as I know you've experienced this past month with with the different groups and people having feelings coming out, that when feelings start to show up, for someone who hasn't felt them in a long time, it's really overwhelming and scary and um, unpredictable. But I think that's, I mean, that's one of the great things, I think, about the group sessions is even doing something simple like the feeling wheel, just being able to say, I feel this, even if it's, I feel angry. Being able to say that and express that, I think, is huge for some people because they tend to bottle it up and they don't want to recognize it or they just don't want to deal with it. So even having that ability to get that out, I think, is huge for them and recognizing it. Especially, I feel sad. Yeah. And I feel afraid. Those two vulnerable feelings are, are so difficult for addicts. They'd much rather medicate than feel either of those. Right, yeah. So when they're coming to you in your practice and they're saying, I feel anxious, and they're trying to get you to write a script to get them to come back to, no, you just feel afraid. Yeah. But I was thinking that earlier today. I think for primary care physicians especially, when you get an addict that is vulnerable, that is asking for help in that moment, I think it's huge... I mean, massively important for us to have resources in our back pocket to be able to tell people, this is a great option for you, you need to go here, because it might be six months before you see that vulnerability again, and right. who knows what can for happen sure. in those six months. So I really emphasize primary care physicians just to find some resources in your area, just have something in your back pocket if this stumbles across your office one day. Yeah, Absolutely. So what are some of the things that you find helpful um, or the resources that you might want to have available or know about when you set up your practice or join your group? So right now I'm in a residency clinic, so we tend to have a more indigent population, lower income, so free resources for me in particular are important. Mm-hmm. So knowing our AA meetings, you know, um, our Narcanon meetings, Al-Anon for the family members in particular, just having a good list of solid groups in the area that you can refer patients to is very helpful. I think if you're in a little more affluent area, certainly having, you know, inpatient programs that are available is a good or something like your IOP that is an option for patients just being able to know good ones in the area and you know on the flip side knowing ones not to send to is also important mm-hmm. um i know in in Gwinnett county where your program is that the the mental health resources are are there and are mm-hmm. available but people don't really know how to access it and so being able to put the number in their hand and say call this number and say this giving them the actual sentence can be really beneficial because they'll call it and then they'll go blank and then they'll hang up. And they'll hang up. Yeah, Um, they don't know what to ask. they have even written down, this is the sentence to to help them get through that moment. And now that we have Dr. Google that you can find all these resources online, very helpful. Thank you so much for being here. It was a great show today. Thank you all for listening. Happy New Year, and we'll see you next week on Detailing Addiction. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.